Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter. Today's episode is on mental health. This is one of three shows that we have with our great guests. I'll introduce him in a minute. Today's show is Where We Stand on, on the Issue of Mental Health. And boy, oh boy, there are a lot of variables related to, to mental health for sure. So what we want to do is first of all, thank all the people that are involved with, with Health Chatter. Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins, Deandra Howard, Sheridan Nygaard, do all our great background research for us and give, give uh, Clarence and I some good talking points to discuss with our guests. And if we do it by ourselves, even they give us some good talking points as well. Then, in addition, we have Matthew Campbell, who's our production manager, who's second to none. He does all the logistics behind the shows, keeps everything going technically. Then we have Human Partnership, which is our community sponsor. That is a great, great organization. I recommend our listening audience check them out. You can go to our website, healthchatterpodcast.com, and also link to their website and see all the great things they do in the community to address health issues, frankly, for all of us. And then, of course, there's Clarence Jones, my great colleague and partner in crime as it relates to health chatter. We've been chatting a lot about a variety of different health health issues this is, I think, our 55th show, Mike. This is so it's it's been going for a while. It's a great, great podcast, and it's it's great having Clarence as a as a colleague. So today we're going to be looking at the state of the art in mental health, and I've got a great guest for us today, Mike Trangle, Dr. Mike Trangle. He and I go back a long, long way. We were in high school together. We were on a tennis team together. And our professional lives kind of went in different directions, but we always knew kind of where each other was <laughs> in the environment here. We could always, always connect. So Mike- Isn't there a song a, like that? You were always on my mind. You were always <laughs> on my mind, exactly. <laughs> um, at any rate, Mike has got a, a great illustrious background in the in the area of of mental health, and he really is a gem for those of us in in the state of Minnesota that can rely on his um, his expertise and his his insights. He's been involved in a variety of different um, mental health oriented uh, issues including eating disorders, chemical dependency, uh, crisis stabilization for, for adolescents. Most recently, he was at, at Health Partners heading up their, their psychiatric initiatives there. And most recently, he's a, a distinguished lifetime fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, immediate past president of the Minnesota Psychiatric Society, He's on the National Quality Forum on Standing Behavioral Health Measurement Committee and participate in our governor in the state of Minnesota, his advisory council on mental health, and also a task force on competency restoration. So I mean, he's he's got it. <laughs> he's got it in his head on where we stand with mental health. And we'll also be having Mike on in a couple of other shows down, down the pike on looking at mental health 
as it relates to particular population groups and age groups, and then also a uh, following show on policy implications, what we can do from a policy perspective in order to change these things. So, Mike, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. It's been, it's a pleasure. It's great seeing you as well. So all right, let me kick this off. I'm going to ask this, this maybe... It seems like a simple question, but it, it probably has a longer answer. What, Mike, what have you seen? I mean, you've been in this in this arena for a long time now. So what have you really seen in the area of mental health over the years? I mean, there's got to be some some torches that see that we all should be carrying. Things that have changed, things that have got better, things that have gotten worse. What's your perspective on it? Um, my perspective is is um, a little bit twofold or colored. Yeah. Um, when anyone starts their career, and I started as a clinician, mm -hmm. uh, going through psychiatric residencies, seeing patients, both adolescents and adults, um, and doing a combination of inpatient and outpatient work, and then adding substance use disorder work. Um, and early on in anybody's career, you want to sort of master uh, your your uh, trade, you know, yeah, your field. perspective and competencies. Um, so as I went along my career, I, I sort of knew more and got better, get experience, you know, so uh, you're leavened by uh, uh, knowing more patients and your own life experiences. Um, at the same time, it's been very apparent to me that early in my career, um, Nobody talked about mental health, you know? Um, if you think about it, um, somebody got sick, got hospitalized, you know, they never got um, cards, a lot of people visiting letters. You know, I don't know if they got uh, uh, cakes or dinners left over if, the, if uh, you know, one of the spouses was in the hospital and stuff. It just wasn't done. It was like, it was like a dirty word almost. Yeah. So much shame and avoidance. Uh, about it. And I would say over the decades, uh, I think both families first and then patients to a lesser extent started uh, um, realizing there's stigma involved here and it's totally unwarranted. People don't choose to have mental illnesses. People really don't choose to have substance abuse disorders, um, but they still have to deal with the fallout in, uh, coming from that. And yeah. uh, as that has gotten more acceptance by the advocacy groups that it's okay, and maybe we need to fight for our slice of the pie, um, things have changed, you know? Uh, it, it still has a long, long way to go uh, if you look at the statistics. But I, I think in some sense, the core, one of the core issues is, this is not my fault. I shouldn't need to be ashamed or hide, um, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's a huge change. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because you know, in my in my notes that I got from our crew, the the first word that I put on my on my list of questions besides this one was stigma. And there was a there I there think still was, there still is. There still is that stigma. It's like if you if people are are labeled with a um, a mental health disease, it's kind of like it's kind of like not good you know it's just like you know people have this attitude about it and it's it's unfortunate 
So, so I'm like, no, I, I, I'm sorry, Matthew. You had you raised your hand and I didn't even look up. I apologize. That's okay. That's okay. Hey, you know, I I do appreciate this conversation. You know, as as you were talking, I I had to go back to my childhood uh, when uh, uh, when I thought about about this term is uh, you know we didn't we didn't talk talk about mental health. We talked about being crazy, and every everything went underneath that that particular title. And so, as you were saying, you know, it's, it's just if you were crazy, just people just left you alone. But there's so many different things that impact our mental health that we never even thought about. So many different types of uh, conditions. And so, could you talk about some of the conditions that that are involved with mental health issues, uh, so that people can get a better understanding of the, these are some of the things that do affect your mental health? Well, think about the pejorative terms that got used when we were growing up. Someone was a retard. Yeah. Um, uh, Mental retardation is one of the things we deal with, whether it's because someone has uh, uh, Down's syndrome, you know, or other kinds of things. Someone's psycho, Mm -hmm. you know, which usually means psychotic disorder, you know, or crazy, or you're yellow. I mean, it could be you're a coward, it could be an anxiety disorder, you know. But the way it's, especially amongst teenagers who are sort of like brutals, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and teasing each other and stuff. Um, you know, and if you think about it, uh, a uh, something that used to be uh, considered a mental illness decades ago was being gay, mm-hmm. you know, let alone get into all the uh, uh, trans, you know, um, lesbian, uh, binary kinds of uh, things, you know. But that was also sort of, if you want to insult a teenage boy, you would call him, Gay or something, you know, because there was so much shame associated with it. That that uh, as more evidence came out, probably twenty years ago or so, uh, it got removed from being a disorder, a mental health disorder, you know. But initially, it was plugged. It was, it was uh, plugged into that category um, without good evidence. Um, and it's kind of interesting that there seems to be a renaissance of uh, hate and prejudice against uh, trans people these days right now, you know, that's yeah. the country. And and not just in the U.S., other countries too. But uh, it's kind of interesting how politics doesn't, that certainly doesn't follow evidence. And uh, how and why somebody brainstorms, let's pick on these people so we can divert attention from something else now, uh, or at least get more support now. That's a mystery. I'm not a politician, but it's still a mystery to me, and I don't understand that. So let me ask you something, Mike. Um... You know, well, the well, the years, um, and you've been involved in it for for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about um, communication around mental health. Um, how is it that we've, you know, certainly we have venues today for communication that um, lend itself to quick information. Okay, maybe not always accurate information, but Tell me how communication vehicles has either helped the mental health issue or has been detrimental to it. Well, just take the internet. Yeah. And and not getting into fringe segments of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's abundant data that um, for a minority of teenagers, people that are going through the developmental stage where they're trying to figure out who they are, separating, individuating from their parents and who am I, what's my identity, 
uh, where I'm not just reacting to my parents when either modeling from them or, or trying to separate and fight with them to become my own person. Um, but uh, during that turmoil, the minority of them um, can find fellow people struggling with whatever they're feeling, whatever they're struggling with, and get some support. You know, yeah. so in a modest, small way, it's kind of useful in that way. In a bigger impact, and for many more people, the, the uh, perfectionism and the uh, uh, unreal expectations and the uh, trolling and a way, a, a vehicle to sort of get out your hatreds and your own feeling bad and taking it out on other people. You know, it's diminished self-esteem, whether it's self-image, whether it's just self-esteem, whether it's... Uh, uh, whether you can be okay with yourself and happy and reasonably content with life, or you feel like you're a failure and yeah. there's no future for you. Um, so it, it, like many things, I think it's had a mixed reaction. Um, uh, um, and depending on which, which subgroup you fit in and how you use it and how much of it, you use, it could be a little bit of an aid or it could be a big bummer. Yeah. So let, let, let me let me ask this question because I, I you know it's it, you know and 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 I I come from a community perspective so you know I get all these I get all these comments people will say about different different kinds of topics but what percentage of, of our population really is affected by mental health issues you know I mean what percentage of which population did you say yeah just just in general I want I just want to do a, just something in general you know and, and the reason why I ask that question is that you know a lot of times people come up with all kinds of uh, of, of data, they say half of us are, you know, have mental health issues, and and that's we know that that's not true. But I know that there's some specific there's some specific populations, specific information that we need to know uh, to help to address some of the myths about this particular issue. So you can just wherever you want to go, I'm, I'm okay with that. Wherever you want to go, because I, I we're, go, we're going to touch somebody someplace. Okay, um, if you look at the Mental Health Association of Minnesota. Uh, 2019-2020 survey showed that 20.78% of adults were experiencing mental illness. Okay. Um, if you look at uh, uh, there's a there, how do I want to say this? Uh, well, just um, Right now, it's been it's you know the the percentage of people that that talk about symptoms and, and it's a little bit lower uh, enough cluster of symptoms to give you a diagnosis has been increasing pretty rapidly, especially anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. more so in adolescents than adults. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're talking about a certain point in time, uh, let me see, I have it right here. Give me a second. Okay. I mean, this is very, this is very, very, very interesting topic, and I think, like I said, it it, it touches on so many parts of our populations and our communities. There's just so many uh, misconceptions, thoughts, and so stereotypes. Like 28.3% of uh, adults in Minnesota have depression and anxiety lately. Okay, um, and is that is that considered chronic? Or is that just, or is it more acute? So symptoms of, not necessarily, it's more acute. More or acute. It be, or it could be a worsening of a chronic one if they're lumped together. Yeah. All right. So let, let you know. No, and, we, and I know we, at some point you asked me, how does Minnesota compare? But since I'm since I happen to have that statistic and I found it right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right. I, would, I would say the theme that I've seen when I looked at sort of the literature for this is uh 
Minnesota is not looking good and the U.S. is looking a little worse. Not a lot worse, just a little worse. So right. there's like 32.3% of adults have depression or anxiety right now compared to 283 in Minnesota. And that sort of ratio is pretty consistent for most everything. So, so all right, so we see, um, let, let's talk about a little bit about acute and chronic. So like for instance, um, people who've, who've, let's just say who have had a heart attack, okay, or heart failure, all of a sudden they can easily go into a depressive state or they can have anxiety about that. So or if they're lucky both. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. So it's like, all right, all right, as a clinician, um would you would you label that more um, shall we say acute as opposed to chronic? In other words, you know, a mental illness that you know people just have for a long, long period of time, as opposed to it, the mental health issue being associated with another issue, such as heart disease? Um, you know, we should probably make a distinction between something happens and you have a reaction to it. Okay, yeah. You know, which in a technical sense is called uh, an adjustment reaction or adjustment disorder. Okay. That's time limited and it doesn't last for more than three months kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, uh, so if you think about it, you know, you got chest pain, you're, uh, the ambulance takes you to the ER, you know, and they uh, say, oh, well, you're having a heart attack. You know, you got Q waves and SD elevation in your EKG. Right, yeah. Maybe I'm talking Dr. Babble there, but you got signs, symptoms of it and mm -hmm. you have components and stuff. And uh, then they want you to sign and say, well, we're going to, we're going to do a, um, uh, radiological study and if we find something we want to sort of do a stent we want you to give us permission to do both in one fell swoop yeah you know? yeah yeah um, okay so you know then you go there and they find oh you got a blockage in your main artery that they call the widow maker yeah mm. yeah right you know the <laughs> lad and um you know anybody is going to be panicky at that mm -hmm. you know you'd have to be like uh artificial intelligence to not react to that <laughs> right oh, exactly you know? <laughs> Um, so it would be weird if you weren't having a, a, a really scared, terrified reaction to that. You and know? your blood pressure doesn't go up. Yeah, right. Well, you know, it depends <laughs> how much of a blockage you have. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so anyway, you go through the surgery and you don't die. Then you find out I have no damage or I have a medium amount of damage and my ejection fraction is not as uh, potent. My heart isn't pumping out the blood as strongly as before, you know. Yeah. And, um, you don't know if you have permanent damage or temporary damage or how much, you know, so you're going to continue to be pretty darn worried about that, you know, and you go to cardiac rehab and eventually it kind of wears off and you go on with your life, you know, and most people won't stay in that acute reaction for that long unless they somehow get depressed, mm -hmm. you know, because you can also have a depression mm -hmm. and whenever you're depressed, uh, everything's not as good. You know, you're more pessimistic. It's not going to work out well. You don't have your energy. You don't have your concentration. You don't have your normal sort of sense of optimism. You don't initiate things, you know, and a subset of depression can be an agitated depression with a lot mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. Uh, not everybody gets that, but mm -hmm. so um, it can be blurred by other things happening. But if it's just a pure adjustment reaction, uh, uh, that's not really depression. Gotcha. 
Okay. And 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 in those kinds of situations for our listening audience, um do do um psychiatrists, for instance, work with like internists or cardiologists in this particular instance in order to coordinate care? Or is it really more situational, like you're talking? It's a quick adjustment and then thank you very much. Whereas you in your practice, you were you were seeing perhaps more serious ongoing chronic cases. Um or is it both? <laughs> yes, it's both. And it's how do I want to say this? Um I think uh theoretically what you're talking about is psychiatrist and or therapist coordinating and talking all the time with the internist and staying in touch. Right. right. A wonderful goal. I don't know that it necessarily happens that way most of the time. Gotcha. People are busy, they have their practices, you know, you might yeah, send a copy of your evaluation. If something comes up and you're really worried, you might give a call, but it's uh, the exception, not the norm. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, you know, it's interesting though, in, in your statistics you talked about, and I'm hoping I'm saying this correctly, about a third of other people in the country, you know, you're talking about the, the difference between Minnesota and, and, and the country, about a third of us have, have some kind of mental uh, health issues what's the mental health care like uh uh the the access uh in this country i mean if we have so many people with this issue i mean we're, we're talking about it quite a bit but what is what do you what what's your your thoughts about the mental health care uh access in this country so if you look at it nationally um uh 54.7 percent 54.7% of adults with mental illnesses do not receive treatment. Wow. Okay. Um, and it, it's, how do I want to put this? It's not good anywhere. The the state uh, that has the best access, according to this uh, MHA study, uh, is Montana, which is not what I would have expected. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but Neither do they die. And they don't have that many people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they have the best access. Okay. And that, yeah. and that means four in 10 adults with mental illnesses do not receive treatment. So only 60% of people get in. Wow. And that's the best state. Right, right. You know, um, if you look at the average uh, NASDAQ, 28.2% of all adults with mental illness re reported that they were not able to receive treatment they needed. 42% of that group said they couldn't do it because they couldn't afford it. Other people find out that uh, there just is a shortage, whether it's therapists, whether it's psychiatrists, um, uh, they're busy. The workforce is shrinking as the baby boomers retire and they're not being replenished because the schools to, to uh, train them and put them out. Uh, I don't wanna say this. To me, this relates, if you wanna talk about the root cause of a fair amount of this, I think if you think about the stigma and, and how that has impacted things. Until just about 10, 20 years ago, if you had Medicare um, and had a medical problem, Medicare pays 80% of your doctor costs, you know? Wow. Um, if you had a mental health problem, they would pay 50%, mm. you know? Uh, mental health and, and, and being, a, being a psychiatrist or being a, somewhere in the, anywhere in the mental health uh, uh, diaspora, uh, um, has never been, uh, how do I want to say this? 
you have Dr. Welby's growing up. Yeah. You have Ben Casey. Dramatic. They're great uh, friends, great love lives, and they make a lot of money. You know? Yeah. Not, not Dr. Welby, but the other ones. <laughs> the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But you had very few shows kind of lionizing uh, um, psychiatrists, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't like prestigious. It didn't pay that well. And less people went into it, and um, uh, which means you have workforce issues in terms of access. And if, if you don't pay well, um, you also have less people going into it, not just prestige, but money-wise, they're combined. And um, it's always been that way. You know, it might be changing lately because there's such a shortage, they have to pay more. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and and um, health plans, well, even Medicare, I mean, um, have been able to get away with it. You know, I mean, there was a parity law that got passed a long time ago, but it's just beginning to be enforced a little bit now. You know, um, did that answer your question? I think I started to ramble a little. No, you know what? You know, I want to say this real quick. Dr. Michael, I want to appreciate you because you always say, how do I say this? And that's what this is health, health chatter is about, is say it. You know, because, <laughs> because, because the thing that's most important for us really is to be able to have an authentic, open, honest conversation. And you are the expert. You know, and I, I there's so many questions that I have. And uh, I just want you to just, you know, be safe. But say it. Just tell it. Just tell us what the real deal is, because that's what we want to do on this particular program. So I appreciate so, you. Let me broaden this a little bit. Uh, I know okay. mental health matters or chatter or whatever it is. What is it called again? Health chatter. Health chatters. It's not just mental. Okay, that's good. Because it's worse for substance abuse. And I want to yeah. add the conversation. Okay. Um, For the for most people that have substance abuse disorder in the U.S., ninety three point five percent did not receive any form of treatment. Hmm. God, that's sad. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's very impressive. You know, um, only six and a half percent got in for treatment. That's insane, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's interesting enough, but right now we're, you know, it, it, with Human, we're doing some things around substance abuse, uh, education and training. We just trained like 30 young people to go into the community to talk about this issue. And and what you're saying is that 93% of them, of people that they may be talking to, won't even have access? 93.5%. <laughs> right. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's good to know, but it's also sad to know. Exactly. And especially, especially with the with the issues that we're having that are being compounded by, you know, the stressors, the the fake news, and and uh, you know, relationship, all those kinds of things. It's uh, it's something that we really, as a community, have to think about and talk about. So I'm going to put this in perspective a little bit. When I was uh, an undergrad at the University of Minnesota. I had a um, a position at Fairview Hospital on the on the west bank of the of the river as a psychiatric technician, okay, for adolescents, okay, and many many of those kids that were admitted to the hospital back then were quote behavior problems. That's what they were diagnosed as behavior problems. And uh, although we did see um, 
you know, medically oriented, you know, problems as well. Uh, paranoia, psychosis, um, you name it. But has the language of mental health changed? You know, um, how do I want to say this exactly? Uh, um, yes and no. When, okay. When you play, I mean, behavior problems or EBD, emotionally behaviorally disturbed. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Are, are more school education labels and not, they're not clinical psychiatric diagnosis. We've never seen those labels. And but, yet they were hospitalized. Yeah, yeah. So so when you say behavior problems or EBD, I don't know what it means. It means with a given patient, and I've worked in hospitals for a long time, it, it's kind of meaningless, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, what what are the cluster of symptoms? What's the actual diagnosis, you know? And um, generally, uh, uh, these days, Psychiatric units, there's such a shortage of beds that people that get into psychiatric units are people that really are sort of like, um, if they wouldn't be there, they wouldn't be safe. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. They're there for safety's sake, not to control behavior per se. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Which, of course, which of course re, re, um, causes its own reverberations down the pike. If you're not going to treat them there, uh, where do you treat them? You know, yeah. and, and locked up in a unit, uh, to treat behavioral problems is not necessarily the ideal, but if you don't have other places or ways to intensively engage, not just the patient, but the family, you know, um, to get them better, they don't get better. They just get kicked like a can getting kicked down the road. You know, they go to juvenile detention and they have something ordered, but it doesn't really happen very reliably, whether it's in-home right, right. other stuff and things just get worse. Um, if, if you have a system that's not been adequately funded, with adequate uh, numbers of clinicians and resources, things don't get better. Yeah. So let me talk about also um, over the years, you know, in your practice, have you seen a um, a major change in um, medication, for instance? You know, medications tend to incrementally improve um, mm -hmm. and um, and help. Uh, they tend to not be the panacea that people tend to think, or that tends to be sort of uh, highlighted in uh, dramatic uh, movies and TV shows. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and even if they do work, they oftentimes have some side effects that uh, mean, and if you're talking about for people with schizophrenia or psychosis, it's more than a little, you know, they have significant side effects that cause people to say it may not be worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, but but it's like um, you almost always need to do um, working with the individual and the family um, and their psychology and the kind of lives they live and how they what kind of support systems they have how they think of themselves what can they do differently whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy other kinds of things you want to sort of do a, a balanced uh, approach that's not one simplistic answer. All right. So for our listening audience, this gives us, frankly, just a tip of the iceberg of, of, of addressing um, mental health. Hopefully in, um, in, our, in our next two shows with, with Dr. Trango, we'll be able to look at, we'll, we'll get a little bit more 
are into the the nitty gritty. Um, I know for for instance that that um, Mike is very involved with policy changes, and hopefully we'll be able to share that <laughs> with all of you so that you're aware. You're simply aware of what's out there, and um, and our hopefully our goal for you know Clarence and I and and Health Chatter is to really really break through even more <laughs> the um, the stigma that's that's attached to mental health because yes it's gotten I would I would say it's maybe gotten better but it could be a lot better than when we're at for sure. So any other closing thoughts for this segment, Mike? Um, well, you know, part of what I thought you were going to ask more about, I got a million statistics, but it's, yeah. it's the same as what I've already said. So I don't think to go over adolescents versus adults. CDs. Yeah, we'll get into that but, for sure. But but if you think about access, um, uh, I don't think it's a simple thing. Um, and it's like, you know, you got the stigma, you got the expense involved. Some of the data that I have here shows that uh, if you have private insurance, the co-pays are about twice as much for mental health, even now, um, and the deductibles compared to medical things. So that hasn't stopped. Um, it's um, workforce issues, it's balance of life issues, you know, and you got to know you have a problem, you know, and it's not, a lot of people don't know what they have. It's not like I got a yeah. chest pain. I mean, if somebody has a panic attack, they're probably going to end up in the ER. But otherwise, it's something's wrong, but it's, it's not what it, you don't know what it is necessarily. You got to figure out, I have a problem. And a lot of times, you know, people sort of just say, what's the matter with me? What, you know, I'm just not thinking clearly. Or I, I, I got to like get through this. I got to, I'm not, I'm, what am I, uh, too wimpy or something? And you don't know that you need help. And then you got to feel like it's okay if I need help. And then you actually have to get in and find out whether you can, you know, get in. And, and since there's a shortage, it's not easy to get in. You got to jump through a number of hoops. You got waiting lists. Yeah. You know, the, uh, if you look at the health plan networks, they oftentimes have phantom people in them, you know, uh, people that aren't taking anymore and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it's just not easy, you know. And there are a lot of barriers to surmount to think about, know what you want to do, and then actually get in. Uh, I'm on the board of uh, Minnesota NAMI, mm -hmm. and they do an annual survey. We do an annual survey. And um, what they found, it, it's not really a, a statistically, it's not like publishable in terms of the rigor, you know. Um, but what they, they found is, uh, people had a great difficulty accessing all different kinds of services, whether it's inpatient beds, whether it's residential treatment, whether it's just psychiatry, especially child psychiatry or therapy. And they found out, especially for psychiatry, that a lot of people just give up and stop trying because they can't get in. They call so-and-so, so many people, they're not taking, they're not even on the list anymore, blah, blah, blah. They don't take insurance, you know, right. whatever it might be. But it's not easy, and a, and a significant percentage of people just stop and they give up, and they just never get in. So, Mike, let me ask you, we did, we did a show um, a couple months ago on the issue of trust. So let's just say, for instance, you know, you, ha you have a patient. It, it seems to me when you're dealing with, with mental health issues, 
probably many health issues, but certainly with mental health issues, there's got to be a real trust factor between the patient and and the provider. Um, talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, you, you have to. If I have a patient coming to see a new person, you know, yeah. if I'm um, let me let me back up a second. Say I have a mental health issue, and depending what it is, you know, if you look at the two most common things, anxiety disorders and depression, you know, yeah, anxiety yeah. disorders, I'm really pretty fearful and nervous and scared about. I'm going to see someone. I don't know what the heck this person's going to do for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't trust it necessarily. I'm kind of vigilant and uh, um, uh, finding someone who is a good match that could kind of get me and that I could learn to trust is huge, you know? Or if I'm depressed, the issue is I'm not myself. I have no energy. I have no initiative, you know? Um, uh, I was sort of one of the leaders of a diamond study that happened in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And as Jurgen Unitzer would say at the, uh, who was the guy that sort of like with Wayne Caton developed sort of a um, collaborative care model, uh, which is by far the most evidence-based thing to treat depression and other diseases turning out. Um, he would sort of say, one of my first patients said, when I'm really depressed, I can't even get out of bed and get dressed. I don't shower. I don't do my daily hygiene. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the initiative. I don't care. I know it's not going to help. Nothing's going to get better. What's the use? Um, and for me to get up and call a doc and say I'm not doing well is way more than I can handle. Yeah. Um, and so you're taking people that, that are at their worst and they're not functioning well. And you're asking them to sort of like fight the system, which is stacked against you to get in. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it's too much. You have to fight, fight the system at the same time when you're dealing with your medical issue. It's you know, just like, whoa, it's overwhelming. You know, and, and it's funny because... Uh, Ideally, the system, if you talk to people, they say it needs to be designed so there's no wrong door and that you know, people will get you in and get you in a timely way. But each agency has their own way to protect themselves. You know? And right. there are sociologists that have done studies looking at you know, therapy patients. And it's like, uh, in the old days, this might have been the 60s or 70s, they would say that uh, the kind of patients that therapists like to see are young, verbal, uh, attractive, and I don't know what Yavis. I don't know what the uh, intelligent. And I don't know what the S was, but yeah, um, uh, it's not your disheveled schizophrenic who's homeless and wants to do something about it. You know, um, and those people somehow don't seem to make it in. One, they're not as competent, and two, um, they're David Mechanic did some of the studies looking at how uh, uh, institutional barriers sort of creep up to make it a little nicer workplace for some people. You know, you had, you alluded to, um, you know, some of the variables that, that, that link um, today that, that are, that are causing people to become more and more depressed or more and more anxious, um, you know, being, you know, <laughs> gay or lesbian or bisexual, that certainly has, has its implications. Or we have um, societal issues like um, that we all faced, 
one oh. way or the other. You look at COVID, okay, um, which was, you know, over the edge for a and, lot of people. And everybody got way isolated. Very isolated. You know, and you can imagine if you have a mental health issue on top of that, oh, my God, right? You know, um, uh, I've been a leadership vice chair and chair of the Governor's Mental Health Advisory Council for a while. And we heard from a lot of people during COVID, especially people with substance abuse. Uh, yeah. Um, they couldn't go to groups, you know, and they couldn't stay so right. clean. And yeah. they couldn't say when they started using again, you know. And right. uh, um, what turned out to be a huge lifeline for them was just the telephone, you know. Uh, yeah. And there was a huge fight going on in those days about were people going to pay or not pay for audio only, you know. But you got a lot of people in rural areas, a lot of people in the, in the inner rings where where uh, they don't have, you know, it's not just a rural, but it's also if you don't have money or a good network in the city. There are a lot of people that didn't have good internet access, couldn't do the video, or, or it was in and out. And they found that just calling and talking to your uh, CD counselor or your shrink on the phone was mm-hmm. a lifeline. And they said that's what kept them alive. Wow. wow. And we argued vociferously that, that one, it got added to the pandemic uh, exemptions, you know. But then, and then just recently they extended the study. Instead of just saying we should pay for audio only for CD and mental health, they just extended the study for a year or two. Yeah. It's come up again in a year. And uh, it's those kinds of things that are life and death for people that, that I think. Um, legislators uh, and sometimes health plan people don't get, you know. Right, and and we'll address that in you know in in one of our shows that we have the policy stuff for sure because I can I can only just begin to imagine the the implications that um, policy has for for treatment and um, or intervention and you know you talk about you know call calling somebody on the phone or even a Zoom type thing. I can't imagine that that perhaps is the same thing as like a, a ther- in, in-person therapy session, okay? Where if you need to, you can hug hug a person or or what have you. You know, the personal uh, interaction is, is compromised, but it's better than nothing. Right. For sure, for a lot, you know, for a lot of these people. People talk about it like it's either all one or all the other. And in reality, yeah. if you're deaf, then you're trying to maximize, optimize how it goes. If right. you, you do it in person, sometimes you do the televideo. But if you if you, if it's not available that day because the internet connection keeps going out, um, yeah. you know, at times you use audio, at times you do face-to-face, at times you do Zoom. It doesn't have to be talked about like it's this or that. It's both Correct. and. Right, right, right. They can complement one, one another for, for sure. So... Um, Final thoughts for kind of this state of the of the art, kind of, you know, the gestalt of it all here um, before we go into our next show with, with you on looking at different population groups, Mike. I, I am fairly optimistic. Um, uh, I do think things are getting better and I think they're sort of a glacially slow, but sort of steady kind of progress towards more and more people realizing it's not your fault if you have a mental illness or substance abuse. You, you are just as deserving as anyone else to be treated fairly and equally. And little by little, I think uh, everyone's starting to get that and more resources are being put into it. 
And I would say um, uh, 20 years from now, it'll be a lot better, even if it doesn't happen instantly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could argue the same thing, you know, in the cardiovascular, you know, you know, it's, it's just like, yes, things have gotten better, but we're still, it's still like, you know, the number one cause of, of, of death in this country. So what's going on? You know, where, where are we going here? So, you know, things do get you better. You don't have access. You don't have the same access problems. Correct. Absolutely. And that's because you, you got money put into it. It's a procedure-based thing, and it pays well. And absolutely, absolutely, you you nailed it on that one. So, all right. So, for our our listening audience, uh, this is the first of a trifecta of of shows on on mental health, and I greatly appreciate your your insights, Mike, on on all of this. Um, and if need be, we'll do it. We'll do more you know, um, as things, as things progress. Our next show, interestingly enough, is on pediatric emergency room concerns. And um, a very, very dear colleague of mine and neighbor, turns out that many mental health patients are showing up in the ER where they aren't treated for ER oriented things, but they need to stay there because they have nowhere else to go. So, I mean, talk about a mental health issue. Oh, my goodness. All right. So all these things kind of meld together. So stay tuned for that for our, for our next show. So for our listening audience, thank you for coming to this, this particular show, listening in. Again, it's the first of three. And keep health chatting away. Hi, everyone. It's Matthew from Behind the Scenes. And I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, healthchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there. You can interact with us. You can communicate with us. Send us a message. You can comment on each episode. You can rate us. Uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Health Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's healthchatterpodcast.com.